0: Good morning. Good morning, everybody. How are y'all? It's good to see you. Uh, My name is Chris Rivera. I serve as the student pastor here at Mission Church Carnival. I'm really excited to be here. I mean, for like plenty of reasons. Uh, One of them is that uh, this is God's calling on my life and I love doing this. I love sharing the word with you guys. Uh, But one of the big reasons is that I'm excited to give Parker and Elizabeth a much needed break uh, from the hustle and bustle of the Sunday morning. I know that they would love to be here, uh, but I'm sure that they're enjoying their time. It's been really fun to support them over the last week while they were in the hospital. When Parker got there, he started the Lord of the Rings movies because uh, it's Parker. But funnily enough, uh, Elizabeth will only watch the extended editions because um, they're big fans. So we were just taking bets on how many movies he would get through before his son was born. It was a whole thing. It was funny. Uh, but hey, since they specifically asked that we would have uh, continued prayers for them, I think it would be a big miss if we didn't take some time to, to pray for them. And I didn't tell them we were going to do this or anything, but uh if dude had come a week earlier, he would have made the baby dedication. So I feel like, I feel like we can pray for him uh, and their family and just everything that they do for us for just a second. So, uh, Father, we're not here to lift his name high, but thank you for Pastor Parker. Thank you for um, all of the ways that he has given of himself to serve and love the body and his wife as well, right there alongside him. God, uh, the kind of person that Parks turns out to be is yet to be seen, but if he is anything, like his mother or his father. Um, they'll be a man after your own heart. And so God, I just thank you for them. And I just pray that they would have a good time of rest um, and recovery and figuring out what in the world that they're supposed to be doing with this infant. Uh, God, we love you. Uh, prepare our hearts for your words. So in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. And I tell you what, uh, thinking about the possibility of some of those babies uh, eventually being in student ministry, kind of blows my mind, right? Uh, As a quick plug, um, I am always looking for volunteers for student ministry, whether that's security or helping pass out food or checking in or leading a small group. If you're interested in that at all, uh, please let me know. I'm trying to make serving there more accessible. We're trying to have dinners again. We're trying to have childcare and stuff like that again. So please, if you just have any questions about that, just let me know. Uh, but honestly, I think talking about young believers and new believers um, is a good transition back into the book of Galatians because that's exactly what they were. Um, so to read our scripture today, I, I got Cade Britt. Cade Britt, in my hands. It's a friend of mine. He's a fantastic young man. He has uh, stepped up to a bunch of leadership positions in the ministry, um, and he's a great example for the young man that we have. So um, our text this morning is Galatians 4, 8 through 11. Sorry to tell you that just now. No, I'm just kidding. No, I emailed him earlier in the week. Go for it, man, whenever you're ready. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Thank you. Appreciate you, brother. Take it easy. It's the word of the Lord. Yeah, young platform. He did great, he did fantastic. We're going to have his father up later for the benediction. I think that's a really cool thing. Um, but hey, timeline wise, these Galatians, they were still recent converts when Paul wrote this letter. Uh, Previously, they were Gentiles. That means that they were not Jews, uh, but more than being not Jews, they were pagans. Uh, They were slaves to other religious systems. And the central issue of this letter has been these Judaizers, this group of zealous uh, ladder climbing religious Jewish people who have come in to prey upon these new believers. if you haven't been following us, essentially the Judaizers have been teaching that you need Jesus plus, you need Jesus 2.0. Right? Specifically, they said to be saved, you need Jesus plus the Mosaic law, whatever that might be. Uh, Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus moral obedience, Jesus plus the festivals or the dietary restrictions. Uh, basically teaching that you had to add on to what Jesus would do if you were gonna be accepted by God. But that's what we call legalism. If you don't know what that term means, that is essentially it right there. That is a heresy that is alive and well in the world today this idea that you can be a good enough person to earn your way to God, uh, to eternal life, whatever you want to call it, that's not just implied in other religions. That is a central tenet of most world religions outside of Christianity. Uh, Legalism was what the Jews had been preaching by the time Jesus hit the scene. Um, It was what the Judaizers were born and raised in since they were children. And we'll see today that it's what the Gentiles, even though they were not Jewish, we're born and raised in as well. And that's why this gospel that Paul has been preaching of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and the work of Christ alone, that's why it's been so controversial. Uh, he's been expertly defending the gospel message so far. Uh, we won't recap his entire argument, but he's been dismantling legalism, salvation by works. He's been dismantling that piece by piece, explaining that freedom is in Jesus. Uh, basically, the last couple of weeks, Paul has been double East Bay around the back 360 alley to himself, dunking on these Judaizers. Like he's been slamming these dudes. Um, they are getting destroyed, right? Um, basically, he said, "Hey, you have a really high view of the Old Testament. You don't know anything about it, right?" Uh, they had been appealing to the Mosaic laws as a means of salvation, and Paul has shown them that the law was never intended to do that, right? If if they truly believed that they could meet God's perfect standard then they didn't have a high view of the law, they had a low view of the law. If the bar is so low that you can actually jump over it, then you've misunderstood the law. That's what Paul has been getting at. The law was always intended to point us back to the promise from Genesis three, the promised savior. And he said specifically, the law reveals our transgressions, right, reveals our transgressions. Um, There are positive ways that the law does that and negative ways. In the negative sense, the law exposes us, it reveals the sin within us, showing us that we cannot save ourselves. Paul has used the imagery of a jailkeeper, something that has imprisoned us to show us how poor and how destitute we are. But the law also was given for transgressions in a positive sense as well, because if correctly followed, the law restrained the transgressions of God's people. It explained to them how to live correctly before God. It educated them about how to walk in step with Yahweh. It gave them the sacrificial system for what to do when they found themselves in sin. They, it showed them how to live civilly with one another. It restrained transgressions in that way. Paul used the imagery of a guardian in that sense, that the law was protecting us, the law is educating us, the law is guiding us, it is holding our hand and leading us to the promise, right? There's a positive sense that the law did that, and that's why the law is not bad. That was their, their argument against Paul. It's like, well, if you're not saved by the law, what do we even need the law for? And so he's explaining that the law was not bad, that the problem was us, that the Old Testament law never went against the gospel. It was to lead us to it. Christ himself said, I didn't come to abolish the law, not an iota, literally not a dot on the letter I will disappear from it. I came to fulfill it in your place. The problem was us. It wasn't God's word. And then we kind of landed on this idea of being adopted out of slavery, this idea of being brought from enemies of God, to friends of God, to slaves, from slaves, sorry, to children, to sons, to heirs. That spiritual slavery that the Jews grew up in, we've been looking at that. It was a lie that they could be saved by the Mosaic law. Paul said in verse three, same chapter, he said, in the same way, we also, he's talking about the Jews, when we were children, I think physically and spiritually, when it comes to their actual born and raised and also their spiritual maturity, We were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, the ABCs of Jewish legalism. Under the law, helpless and unable to save themselves. And the rest of that verse, Christ comes, born under the law to redeem those under the law, giving them adoption to the family of God. And so today, he's gonna explain that these Gentiles used to be in this same spiritual slavery. Even though they grew up without the law, they were raised in slavery nonetheless. And so he's going to explain that, hey, if you have, in fact, experienced adoption as sons of God, it does not make sense to long for the past. It doesn't make sense. In other words, the thrust of the text, if you're looking for a main point, is, is this. Paul is essentially teaching, you are free from the religious bondage of paganism, which you were raised in. So it doesn't make sense, and it's immature, to go back into bondage by just observing the Mosaic law, Right? If you listen to these Judaizers, if you start adding the law onto the gospel, you're headed head first back into slavery. You're just switching out the ladder. You're just switching out the rules that you're following. It's a different master, but it's the same slavery. And what that means for us, that if we believe in the gospel, believing in the gospel is not just subscribing to a new set of rules. It's not just getting a new ladder that is a little bit less offensive than other ladders. It's freedom from slavery. And so let's read our passage again. I want to read the whole thing again because it's short. It's four verses. Parker really did me a solid here. Uh, Verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. I think at first glance, I think Paul's confusion is pretty obvious. How can somebody who has experienced adoption from darkness and delight, how could somebody ever desire to go back? (laughs) Who in the world trades slavery for sonship and then actually desires to go back to a life of slavery? Who does that, church? I won't bury the lead there. We do, we do, I do, you do. As illogical and as counterintuitive as it seems, every one of us find ourselves longing for that old self every now and then, don't we? To help us understand why that is, why uh, people who are adopted still sometimes long for the past, I think a great example of that is a story of a, he's actually a Memphis native. Uh, this young man, he was born in the 90s. He was raised in the, in the ghettos of Memphis. Um, He was one of 12 children, his mother was a drug addict, his father was in and out of the jail system. And so uh, Michael Jerome Williams found himself in the foster care system, in and out, right? Eventually he would be adopted, but during his time there, he picked up the nickname Big Mike, and you probably don't know him by his birth name, you probably know him under the name Michael Orr, right? Uh, If you've ever watched The Blind Side, that is a thematic depiction of his life and his story, but I think a better depiction is the one that he wrote himself, He wrote an autobiography about how he tried to beat the odds. And I think that his story and really that phenomenon in the foster care system, it really illustrates the Galatians. See, there's this mental block that a lot of kids in the foster care system experience. No matter how unsafe their old home was, no matter how traumatic their birth family was, no matter how destitute, no matter how hopeless their situation may have been, they find themselves running back. Why? Because it feels normal and it feels familiar. Their hearts get thrown out of whack. And despite how much better the foster care system might be, it's a safe home and free meals, they fear that they're not secure. They fear it's going to be the same thing all over again. And so they run back to the things that they knew before. And so Michael, Michael Orr in his book, he explains that that's exactly what he did. Um, and there's not much of it in the movie. But sometimes he would run away for days, for weeks, for months. He would go back to his mom's house or a friend's house or a relative's house. Sometimes he would just go back to the streets because he wanted to feel normal. The actual quote is that he kept pretending that the normal life he always wanted was waiting for him back there. It was waiting for him. Sometimes that security blanket of what feels familiar is the most tempting thing you can experience. It's a common phenomenon. And I would argue that the Galatians are experiencing something very similar. They've been adopted into the family of God and here come these Judaizers and they're tempting enough. Like it's tempting enough to appeal to the works of your own hands. We are all by nature prone to do that, but it is specifically tempting for the Galatians because that's how they used to live. They're appealing to the familiarity of their idolatry. They're not recognizing it but it's exactly the same kind of idolatry they used to live in. Despite the fact that these people had come to know God, the familiarity of their idol worship, of their religious observances, that blanket of trusting your own works, possibly many of their friends and family are tempting them to turn back to the false gospel of working your way up to God. That's what Paul is referencing in verse eight. He says, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Everybody say enslaved for me. slate. I don't want you to miss the language there. Again, unbelievers are not just incorrect. They're not just subscribed to the wrong ideas. They're under spiritual slavery. to things that by nature can never save them. He's talking about lowercase g gods. He's talking about idols, the things that the Gentiles used to worship. Idol worship was a recurring pattern in Israelite history. Have you ever read anything about them? But the the core of idolatry is what Paul says in Romans 1. Idolatry is exchanging the truth about God for a lie and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Uh, The Israelites were bowing down to idols before the tablets even made it down from the mountain, okay? And and we don't make bubblegum effigies to people in our closets. We don't do that. I would hope you don't do that. But you would be mistaken if you were to think that you're not idolatrous because we all are prone to put something else on the throne of our lives, whatever that might be. It might be your jobs, your kids, your spouse, your image, your money, you name it. I do the exact same thing. And the Galatians were no stranger to idol worship either. They were well known for bowing down to Zeus, to Hermes, to various other Greek and Roman gods. And so the point that Paul is trying to make in this first verse is that you need to remember that those things cannot save you. You need to remember that what you used to build your life around has no power to save you. If you start trusting in those again, you're gonna start living like you're in slavery all over again. You will. And that needs to ring loud and clear in this room. If your entire perception, your entire idea of what it means to be a believer is to check more religious boxes, you're not just misled, you're not just misinformed, you haven't understood the gospel. Legalism is not the gospel. That's no different than the hopeless toil of every other religion in the world. And beyond that, it's idolatry. It's thinking much too highly. It's worshiping the works of your hands, your ability to be a religious person. But for those of us that that do know the gospel, I would say that that idol of religious performance, it's it's just as strong and just as tempting and just as dangerous. Because as, as soon as we start thinking, that we can work our way to God, that we can earn God's love, what do we do with the people around us? We start expecting them to earn our love. It flips all of your relationships upside down when you believe a false gospel. That Religious enslavement to church attendance, to successful Bible reading, to prayers at the correct frequency, those things will never make you righteous before a perfect and holy God. That's not the gospel. Now hear me, Jesus is unapologetically about rules and commands. He gives you plenty but there are things to follow once you have been declared a son or a daughter of God. They're what you do when you've been redeemed. You obey out of already belonging. You don't obey to convince God to love you more, right? It was the same way in the Old Testament. Before he even gave them them the 10 commandments, is I am the Lord your God who rescued you out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. Now, here's how you are to walk in light of that. The Old Testament law was never intended to do that. So you can tell Paul is being dramatic with his language, right? He's using the imagery of imprisonment and slavery because they're unaware of what they're doing and there are serious consequences to accepting a false gospel. Because the problem with false gospels and specifically Judaizers, they don't don't market themselves by saying like, oh, come return to slavery. Come sell your soul to something that will never save you. False gospels don't lie like that. Oh, we're just something that's gonna disappoint you in the end. That's not what a false gospel does. No, false gospels are temptations to live the way we used to live. They're tempting because they're familiar. The Galatians are being tempted by familiarity, the comfort of the religious things they used to lie on. And so Paul is being dramatic. He says in verse nine, but now that you've come to know God, everybody say no, or rather to be known by God, everybody say known. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless C's, the elementary principles of the world, the pagans in view here, whose slaves you want to be once more. Uh, we need to understand how scripture uses the word know or to know, genosco, genosco, if you want to pronounce that. It doesn't just mean n- n- intellectual knowledge of facts, it's not just knowing something. Like, I, I know Christina Aguilera, but I don't know Christina Aguilera, right? <laughs> I don't know that I want to. Uh, that's a weird example. <laughs> so sorry. Uh, No, to know means literally to know in the Greek. It means an intimate understanding on a personal level. Scripture uses know when it talks about a man and a wife, right? That's how deep this word is. And so that's why Paul is baffled. In other words, how can you taste and see that the Lord is good? How can you experience his love? How can you walk in a relationship as an adopted son And then genuinely desire to live the life you used to live. It's nonsense to Paul. And it should be nonsense to us, but we find ourselves doing it all the time. Paul is not perfect either. Paul wrestled with his flesh against his spirit all the time too. But he's essentially teaching, hey, the most anti-gospel thing that you can do is desire in your heart to go back to trying to appease God on your own. That is the most anti-gospel thing you can do belief, and it's dangerous. That word, no, it is so strong that Paul felt the need to clarify in this verse. He goes from, well, you know God, but just in case, salvation, salvation really is God choosing to know you, right? Just in case, he doesn't want to imply for a second that the Gentiles are believers because they knew God first. Paul doesn't want them to think that they initiated their salvation, or he doesn't want to reduce salvation to just knowing things about God. So just in case they might misinterpret him and think that they arrived at the gospel on their own, he switches to the passive. Before you attach too much credit to yourself, my people who are prone to rely on the works of your hands, Paul frames salvation in the sovereign will of God to know his people for all time. He didn't choose the Israelites because they were better than everybody else. He chose them because he loved them. Deuteronomy 7 I set my affection on you because I love you. It was his desire from eternity past. They didn't come to it on their own. As the hymn goes, He knew us ere we knew Him. Everything that John taught, we love because He first loved us. And that's important for us. We need to know that salvation is being known by God intimately in a relationship. It's not just knowing things about God. And that's a really important distinction for us. Jesus taught as much on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 7. He's teaching a parable about people that are essentially at the gates of eternity. And they're pleading with, this used to terrify me, this parable, by the way. They're pleading with God to come into his presence. But what is their plea? It's their works. They want in based on the things that they did for God. And what does God say? Depart from me. I never knew you. They knew plenty of things about him, but he never knew them. Thinking about that parable, their plea is, didn't we do mighty works in your name? That is a prime indicator that somebody doesn't understand the gospel. And that's why Paul is so worried about these Galatians. He's been addressing them as brothers, people who are known by God. He has been extending hope to them for the entire letter, but he's begging the question, If you've experienced adoption from a God who can know you and who can love you and who can answer you, why turn back to the weak and worthless idols, these works of your hand that cannot know you, that cannot love you, that cannot give you purpose? It's a prime indicator that somebody hasn't understood the gospel. Uh, I think that the words weak and worthless, there are perfect descriptions of idols. Okay, they're weak because they have no power. There's no power to save in an idol. There's no ability to be known by an idol. There's no way an idol can love you. They are powerless. If you remember the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, you can sacrifice to an idol all day long and it will promise you everything that you should be looking for in the gospel, but it will not answer you because it is not listening. And those gods, lowercase g, are not listening because they do not exist. That's what Paul is getting at. When He calls them weak, but he also calls them worthless. It's a value term. It literally means beggarly or destitute or poor. And what does he mean by that? Well, in light of the last passage that we read, it can never give you an inheritance. Those things can never make you an heir. They can never produce the adoption that is only found in Jesus. Galatians, if you swap your elementary religious practices of paganism for the elementary religious practices of these Judaizers in the Mosaic law, you are heading into the same slavery under a different master. And, and Paul was a, he was a Jewish man. He was an expert of the Old Testament. He knew the law like the back of his own hand and i think that if he's talking about people who were in slavery and were freed and are now longing back to go back right to slavery i think that there's a there's a people that he clearly has in mind when he's writing this he's obviously thinking about the israelites in the wilderness if you remember the book of numbers you will see god's people doing exactly what paul is warning the galatians against the israelites had been freed god had braced up a deliverer moses freed them from the egyptians In this certain section of Numbers, God has literally, he's literally been raining down everything they need, manna and quail from the sky. But what are the desires of their hearts? It's the familiarity of the old life that they used to live in because their new life is hard, right? Numbers 11, four through six. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving and the people of Israel also wept again, not just cried, they wept. And they said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. That cost nothing except their lifelong servitude. Oh, but it cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now our strength is dried up. And look at this. Now there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. All I have is God's unlimited provision." Guys, if that's that's not us, when we look for satisfaction in something other than the gospel, I don't know what is. And look at the list, just a taste, just a taste of the life that we used to live. We long for it. We are just as prone to do it as the Israelites and the Galatians. We are a people who have experienced freedom from bondage, done, sealed, but all of us quickly and desire of our hearts turn to false gospels. Like a foster kid, who runs back into a situation because they think that it's safe. Our flesh longs for the sin that we used to be enslaved to. Now, you enter positionally into the family of God. You are adopted forever. You cannot lose that adoption because you never earned that adoption. But out of the fear, out of the fear that you won't be loved, out of the fear that you're not safe, out of the fear that you're gonna be abandoned, your behavior can start to look like your old life. can it? I feel like that's what Paul is getting at we will often walk head first back into the old gods that we used to rely on they did it again the israelites they love repeating themselves uh numbers 14 they're outside of the promised land they send in the spies there's giants they come back to like yo we're gonna die (laughs) like we're not going in no chance and it says this in numbers 14 they say why is the lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword our wives and our little ones will become a prey Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? Not just good, better. And then they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Literally, I don't want God's chosen leader for my deliverance. I want to elect another leader and follow him. There is no doubt that Paul is making this comparison here. And so I think it's completely appropriate for us to make the comparison between them and us. You see, we were slaves, not just by nature, but by our own Volition. And that's where it gets kind of dicey, right? Because uh, we have been declared sons of God. We are heirs with Christ, but our will, our desires are still tainted by our sins. Until we go to meet him, we all in the brokenness of our flesh will experience longing for the old things. And now we do mature as we go on. Don't hear me wrong. You grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. You do learn to die to your flesh. You do learn to live to the spirit. But until you go, Sin is tempting because there is always gonna be a level of momentary self-satisfaction in it. It will feel familiar. Paul is not communicating to the Galatians here that they are literally losing their adoption. They're not the ones that earned it again. Paul is just warning them that if you add the law to the gospel, you're not gonna lose your inheritance. You're gonna start living like you don't have one. He's called it bewitchment. He's called it foolishness. Paul doesn't have in view the possibility that your salvation can be lost. He has a different possibility in view, the actual possibility, and that's that they never understood the gospel in the first place. That's the fear that he's experiencing. We know that because he's been extending hope the whole letter. He's been calling them brothers. He has been calling them, He literally just called them people who know God and are known by God. But I think in our last two verses, I think Paul expresses the real thing he's afraid of, that they never received it. At least some of them maybe never understood the gospel in the first place. And by the way, that's a fear that any of us would have. We would all have that. If somebody who we thought knew the gospel, their life and their behavior is so out of whack that we are left wondering, man, maybe they have not understood Jesus. Look at verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years. It's not loud enough. I didn't say that loud enough because it's an exclamation point, but I'm hooked up to a mic, so I'll save save you the trouble. He's talking about the Jewish calendar. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. And now that fear of laboring in vain, uh, there's, if you read commentaries, there's two kind of different ways you can take it. One route is that Paul's mad that he's wasted his time. Like he's, he's literally upset. He's afraid that he was trying to produce maturity in these dudes and it's not fruitful. So Paul feels like he's wasted his time. And I think that would be, I mean, that's valid. If you read Acts 13 and 14, Paul was getting stoned, persecuted, chased out of towns, opposed. That would be fair for Paul to say that. Hey, I told you to look at Christ. You're looking at a calendar. I wasted my time. Or the second possibility, which is the one I kind of lean towards. He's afraid that the fact that they won't turn from their legalism is indicating that some of them were not believers in the first place. And that first one, that he's mad he's wasted his time, that, that's fair, but I don't, think he, I don't think he's putting the emphasis on his own work. And here's, here's why I think that. I think, he's, he's, I think it's pastoral love. I think it's pastoral concern because Paul has said multiple times in his other letters that he's content to suffer for the gospel. He'll do it willingly. He said in Romans 9, if I could give up my own salvation so that you would know Christ, I would do it, right? Second Timothy, he's looking death in the face. He's saying, I am suffering all of these things for the sake of the elect, that they may come to know Jesus. So I don't think that he's afraid simply that he's wasted his work. I think he's afraid that their behavior is so counterintuitive to the gospel that maybe that labor that he made to present Christ to them before their very eyes, the text said, maybe that labor never took root. Paul said he was astonished that turning away from the gospel. He said, I cannot believe the foolishness that you are accepting. Somebody, the only explanation could be that somebody has cast a spell on you and that you're being bewitched. It's the same fear that many of us would have. And it's the same fear that many of us have had. I really do think that. You may have been in this position with a family member or a child or your spouse or a loved one, a friend in the body, completely under the impression that that person knew Christ. And all of a sudden you're thrown for a loop and you're wondering if they actually knew the gospel in the first place. And if we're honest, I think many of us have been in that situation with ourselves as well. We, we end up doing something or multiple somethings that are so much like our old life that we have to stop for a minute and be like, dude, do I know Jesus? Am I serious about this? I think a lot of us have been in that moment with ourselves. I think that's what Paul is feeling here. Maybe they're the seed, like the parable. Maybe they're the seed that they sprung up quickly but then the the sun burned it. Maybe they're the seed that grew, but then the weeds choked them out. Maybe they never actually had the depth of soil. Maybe they were never rooted. And it's a a genuine fear. You know, he's been not viewing them as too far gone. He's had repentance in his mind the entire letter, but he is scared for them. And church, that is one of many reasons, but it is one of the big reasons why we labor to present the gospel to you every time you are here. It's that pastoral concern. And I don't say it to lift our names up. I don't say it to make a big deal of our staff or our elders. I say it because false gospels are everywhere. It feels like sometimes you can't, you, can't, you can't watch a movie, you can't listen to a song, you can't listen to a podcast, you can't read a book, you can't see a billboard, you can't answer a text, you can't read a news article without some kind of idol being lifted up, left, left, and right, demanding your time, demanding the throne of your life. So that's why we're concerned. (laughs) We beat the the drum of the true gospel because the false gospels drum nonstop. And we know how tempting it is to turn back to them in your behavior. And that's why Sunday won't pass where we don't remind you, (laughs) where we don't remind you of your adoption as sons and daughters. We will always go back there. That's the entire reason that Paul is writing this letter to remind a people that are God's but are wandering, to remind them that they are in fact God's people. And so a major function of this body, a major function of us getting together is to remember and to identify the weak and worthless lies, to warn each other about the danger of worshiping the works of our hands. We don't repeat ourselves because we think you're unintelligent. We don't repeat ourselves because we think you don't get it. We repeat ourselves because false gospels are dangerous. The gospel of Jesus Christ. His death for you, his life in your place, risen on our behalf. That is the proof that we will raise with him. That is the only truth that you can anchor your life on. And it's easier to forget than we realize. And so as an application of the passage today, Um, I think it's important to have some sort of application. You know, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I don't know what's going on in each one of your family situations and how to apply it. But I think that there are three things that we can all do from this passage. I think the first is to repent of our false gods. I think that's the first thing we can do. I think we can be honest before the Lord and before each other and confess and repent of our false gods. I also think that we can remember the true God. That can, we can remember that through, through the cross, through Christ, we have been adopted, that we have become sons and daughters, formerly slaves, formerly. We can remember what Jesus has done for us. And I think the third thing that we can do is we can reach out to the family, the family of God. People who we are worried that they are straying, we are worried that they don't know the gospel, whatever that may be, we can reach out to them. I think we can all do those things. Um, And so just to, I guess, show my cards, God has given us a practice by which we can do all three of those things. And it's awesome. It's called communion. We We can all in communion, we all have the opportunity to repent of our false gods. We are commanded to do so before we partake. We can also remember the true God. We remember what Jesus did for us. And then also, as we sit at the table with the family, we look and we see the seats that are missing and we reach out to them. That is a major function of communion. Believe it or not, it is communal. It's the ways that we keep our eyes and our ears open to the needs of the family during the time of communion. And so what that means for you is that if there's someone that is not here, if there's someone that you have not spoken to that you have not seen in months, if there's somebody that you are worried that they're straying, that you pray for them during this time, that you reach out to them and all of those things. Uh, But I just wanna fence the table Well, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, Paul tells us not to partake of the table in an unworthy manner. Uh, And here's what that means. The first is that you participate in the sign of the covenant when you've not been covered by the covenant. What I mean is that if you're an unbeliever, you need to pass the table by. And I say that out of love. I say that because Paul specifically said it is detrimental to you to drink from the cup if you've not been covered by the blood. Um, That is one way to participate in an unworthy manner. And then the other way um, is to do it as a believer with your heart divided, with your allegiance to the gods of your old life. And so that's why Paul calls us in 1 Corinthians 11 to examine ourselves, to repent of your false gods, to remember the one true God. And then as we come together, to reach out to one another. It's an excellent opportunity to meditate and reflect on the bodily death of our Savior, to remember the price that had to be paid to move us from slaves to sons, to remember his resurrection, the new life that we've been called to walk in, and to remember and reach out to each other. Uh, Food is a function of your physical body. Communion is a major function of the church body. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says this. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You guys can eat. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup, this cup, rather, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You guys can take. I have a moment of prayer before I get Mr. Britt up here to give you guys a benediction. Uh, Father, um, all of us have tasted and seen in a spiritual sense your goodness, your salvation, your, your glory. God, but each and every one of us have looked for life in something other than the bread of life. God, we have looked for life in something other than the living water. And so, God, just like we need food daily, I pray, God, that the anthem of our lives, that the banner that we fly under is our daily need of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that we would lift his name up proudly in our lives this week. And so, God, I just, I remember. I remember that the the pain that you went through was unbelievable, unbelievable and the physical pain was honestly the lightest part because you became sin. You experienced in that moment the consequences of every sin that's ever been committed by those who would put their faith in you. And so it it was devastating, God. And to top it all off, uh, Lord, I was in the crowd. I was in the crowd. And so Jesus, we just remember the price that had to be paid and we thank you again this morning. That everything that had to happen for us to be loved by God, for us to be accepted by God, for us to live in freedom, for us to finally be free from the slavery of the works of our hands, from the slavery of the life that we used to live, from our idols, everything that needed to happen for us to live in freedom has been done. And God, by your Holy Spirit, by your Holy Spirit, you richly pour the love of Christ out onto your people. God, you are the discernment. The word that you wrote is the truth. God, it is the guide to avoid and to steer away from all of the false gospels, but it is also the true gospel. God, we don't just run away from the things of the world. God, we run to you. We run to you contained in the truth of your word. And so Jesus, thank you. God, thank you. We love you. It's in your name we pray.